Chapter Six of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Six: Coverdale's Sick Chamber. The horn sounded at daybreak, as Silas Foster had forewarned us. Harsh, uproarious, inexorably drawn out, and as sleep-dispelling as if this hard-hearted old yeoman had got hold of the trump of doom. On all sides I could hear the creaking of the bedsteads as the brethren of Blythedale started from slumber and thrust themselves into their habiliments, all awry, no doubt, in their haste to begin the reformation of the world. Zenobia put her head into the entry, and besought Silas Foster to cease his clamour, and to be kind enough to leave an armful of firewood and a pail of water at her chamber door. Of the whole household, unless indeed it were Priscilla, for whose habits in this particular I cannot vouch, of all our apostolic society, whose mission was to bless mankind, Hollingsworth, I apprehend, was the only one who began the enterprise with prayer. My sleeping-room being but thinly partitioned from his, the solemn murmur of his voice made its way to my ears, compelling me to be an auditor of his awful privacy with the Creator. It affected me with a deep reverence for Hollingsworth, which no familiarity then existing, or that afterwards grew more intimate between us, no, nor my subsequent perception of his own great errors, ever quite effaced. It is so rare in these times to meet with a man of prayerful habits, except, of course, in the pulpit, that such an one is decidedly marked out by the light of transfiguration shed upon him in the divine interview, from which he passes into his daily life. As for me, I lay abed, and if I said my prayers it was backward, cursing my day as bitterly as patient Job himself. The truth was, the hothouse warmth of a town residence, and the luxurious life in which I indulged myself, had taken much of the pith out of my physical system, and the wintry blast of the preceding day, together with the general chill of our airy old farmhouse, had got fairly into my heart and the marrow of my bones. In this predicament I seriously wished, selfish as it may appear, that the reformation of society had been postponed about half a century, or at all events to such a date as should have put my intermeddling with it entirely out of the question. What in the name of common sense had I to do with any better society than I had always lived in? It had satisfied me well enough. My pleasant bachelor parlour, sunny and shadowy, curtained and carpeted, with the bedchamber adjoining, my centre-table, strewn with books and periodicals, my writing-desk with a half-finished poem in a stanza of my own contrivance, my morning lounge at the reading-room or picture-gallery, my noontide walk along the cheery pavement, with the suggestive succession of human faces and the brisk throb of human life in which I shared, my dinner at the Albion, where I had a hundred dishes at command, and could banquet as delicately as the wizard Michael Scott when the devil fed him from the King of France's kitchen, my evening at the billiard club, the concert, the theatre, or at somebody's party, if I pleased, what could be better than all this? Was it better to hoe, to mow, 
to toil and moil amidst the accumulations of a barnyard, to be the chambermaid of two yoke of oxen and a dozen cows, to eat salt beef and earn it with the sweat of my brow, and thereby take the tough morsel out of some wretch's mouth into whose vocation I had thrust myself. Above all, was it better to have a fever and die blaspheming, as I was like to do? In this wretched plight, with a furnace in my heart and another in my head, by the heat of which I was kept constantly at the boiling point, yet shivering at the bare idea of extruding so much as a finger into the icy atmosphere of the room, I kept my bed until breakfast-time, when Hollingsworth knocked at the door and entered. "'Well, Coverdale,' cried he, "'you bid fair to make an admirable farmer. Don't you mean to get up to-day?' "'Neither to-day nor to-morrow,' said I hopelessly. "'I doubt if I ever rise again.' "'What is the matter now?' he asked. I told him my piteous case, and besought him to send me back to town in a close carriage. "'No, no,' said Hollingsworth, with kindly seriousness. "'If you are really sick, we must take care of you.' Accordingly he built a fire in my chamber, and having little else to do while the snow lay on the ground, established himself as my nurse. A doctor was sent for, who, being homeopathic, gave me as much medicine in the course of a fortnight's attendance as would have laid on the point of a needle. They fed me on water-gruel, and I speedily became a skeleton above ground." but after all I have many precious recollections connected with that fit of sickness. Hollingsworth's more than brotherly attendance gave me inexpressible comfort. Most men, and certainly I could not always claim to be one of the exceptions, have a natural indifference, if not an absolutely hostile feeling, towards those whom disease or weakness or calamity of any kind causes to falter and faint amid the rude jostle of our selfish existence. The education of Christianity, it is true, the sympathy of a like experience and the example of women, may soften and possibly subvert this ugly characteristic of our sex. But it is originally there, and has likewise its analogy in the practice of our brute brethren, who hunt the sick or disabled member of the herd from among them as an enemy. It is for this reason that the stricken deer goes apart, and the sick lion grimly withdraws himself into his den. Except in love, or the attachments of kindred or other very long and habitual affection, we really have no tenderness. But there was something of the woman moulded into the great stalwart frame of Hollingsworth nor was he ashamed of it, as men often are, of what is best in them, nor seemed ever to know that there was such a soft place in his heart. I knew it well, however, at that time, although afterwards it came nigh to be forgotten. Methought there could not be two such men alive as Hollingsworth. There never was any blaze of a fireside that warmed and cheered me in the down-sinkings and shiverings of my spirit, so effectually as did the light out of those eyes, which lay so deep and dark under his shaggy brows. Happy the man that has such a friend beside him when he comes to die, and unless a friend like Hollingsworth be at hand, as most probably there will not, he had better make up his mind to die alone. How many men, I wonder, does one meet with in a lifetime, 
whom he would choose for his deathbed companions. At the crisis of my fever I besought Hollingsworth to let nobody else enter the room, but continually to make me sensible of his own presence by a grasp of the hand, a word, a prayer, if he thought good to utter it, and that then he should be the witness how courageously I would encounter the worst. It still impresses me as almost a matter of regret that I did not die then, when I had tolerably made up my mind to it, for Hollingsworth would have gone with me to the hither verge of life, and have sent his friendly and hopeful accents far over on the other side, while I should be treading the unknown path. Now were I to send for him, he would hardly come to my bedside, nor should I depart the easier for his presence. "'You are not going to die this time,' said he, gravely smiling. "'You know nothing about sickness, and think your case a great deal more desperate than it is.' "'Death should take me while I am in the mood,' replied I, with a little of my customary levity. "'Have you nothing to do in life,' asked Hollingsworth, "'that you fancy yourself so ready to leave it?' "'Nothing,' answered I, "'nothing that I know of, unless to make pretty verses, "'and play a part with Zenobia and the rest of the amateurs in our pastoral. "'It seems but an unsubstantial sort of business, as viewed through a mist of fever. "'But, dear Hollingsworth, your own vocation is evidently to be a priest, "'and to spend your days and nights in helping your fellow-creatures "'to draw peaceful dying breaths.' "'And by which of my qualities,' inquired he, "'can you suppose me fitted for this awful ministry?' "'By your tenderness,' I said, "'it seems to me the reflection of God's own love.' "'And you call me tender,' repeated Hollingsworth thoughtfully. "'I should rather say that the most marked trait in my character "'is an inflexible severity of purpose.' "'Mortal man has no right to be so inflexible as it is my nature and necessity to be.' "'I do not believe it,' I replied. "'But in due time I remembered what he said. "'Probably, as Hollingsworth suggested, my disorder was never so serious "'as, in my ignorance of such matters, I was inclined to consider it. "'After so much tragical preparation, it was positively rather mortifying to find myself on the mending hand. All the other members of the community showed me kindness according to the full measure of their capacity. Zenobia brought me my gruel every day made by her own hands, not very skillfully if the truth must be told, and whenever I seemed inclined to converse, would sit by my bedside and talk with so much vivacity as to add several gratuitous throbs to my pulse. Her poor little stories and tracts never half did justice to her intellect. It was only the lack of a fitter avenue that drove her to seek development in literature. She was made, among a thousand other things that she might have been, for a stump oratress. I recognized no severe culture in Zenobia. Her mind was full of weeds. It startled me sometimes, in my state of moral as well as bodily faint-heartedness, to observe the hardihood of her philosophy. She made no scruple of oversetting all human institutions, and scattering them as with a breeze from her fan. A female reformer in her attacks upon society has an instinctive sense of where the life lies, and is inclined to aim directly at that spot. 
especially the relation between the sexes, is naturally among the earliest to attract her notice. Zenobia was truly a magnificent woman. The homely simplicity of her dress could not conceal, nor scarcely diminish, the queenliness of her presence. The image of her form and face should have been multiplied all over the earth. It was wronging the rest of mankind to retain her as the spectacle of only a few. The stage would have been her proper sphere. She should have made it a point of duty, moreover, to sit endlessly to painters and sculptors, and preferably to the latter, because the cold decorum of the marble would consist with the utmost scantiness of drapery, so that the eye might chastely be gladdened with her material perfection in its entireness. I know not well how to express that the native glow of colouring in her cheeks, and even the flesh-warmth over her round arms, and what was visible of her full bust, in a word her womanliness incarnated, compelled me sometimes to close my eyes, as if it were not quite the privilege of modesty to gaze at her. Illness and exhaustion, no doubt, had made me morbidly sensitive. I noticed, and wondered how Zenobia contrived it, that she had always a new flower in her hair, and still it was a hothouse flower, an outlandish flower, a flower of the tropics, such as appeared to have sprung passionately out of a soil the very weeds of which would be fervid and spicy. Unlike as was the flower of each successive day to the preceding one, it yet so assimilated its richness to the rich beauty of the woman, that I thought it the only flower fit to be worn, so fit indeed that nature had evidently created this floral gem in a happy exuberance for the one purpose of worthily adorning Zenobia's head. It might be that my feverish fantasies clustered themselves about this peculiarity and caused it to look more gorgeous and wonderful than if beheld with temperate eyes. In the height of my illness, as I well recollect, I went so far as to pronounce it preternatural. "'Zenobia is an enchantress,' whispered I once to Hollingsworth. "'She is a sister of the veiled lady. "'That flower in her hair is a talisman. "'If you were to snatch it away she would vanish, "'or be transformed into something else.' "'What does he say?' asked Zenobia. "'Nothing that has an atom of sense in it,' answered Hollingsworth. "'He is a little beside himself, I believe, "'and talks about your being a witch.' and of some magical property in the flower that you wear in your hair. "'It is an idea worthy of a feverish poet,' said she, laughing rather compassionately, and taking out the flower. "'I scorn to owe anything to magic. Here, Mr. Hollingsworth, you may keep the spell while it has any virtue in it, but I cannot promise you not to appear with a new one to-morrow. It is the one relic of my more brilliant, my happier days.' The most curious part of the matter was that long after my slight delirium had passed away, as long indeed as I continued to know this remarkable woman, her daily flower affected my imagination, though more slightly, yet in very much the same way. The reason must have been that, whether intentionally on her part or not, this favorite ornament was actually a subtle expression of Zenobia's character." 
One subject about which, very impertinently, moreover, I perplexed myself with a great many conjectures, was whether Zenobia had ever been married. The idea, it must be understood, was unauthorized by any circumstance or suggestion that had made its way to my ears. So young as I beheld her, and the freshest and rosiest woman of a thousand, there was certainly no need of imputing to her a destiny already accomplished. The probability was far greater that her coming years had all life's richest gifts to bring. If the great event of a woman's existence had been consummated, the world knew nothing of it, although the world seemed to know Zenobia well. It was a ridiculous piece of romance, undoubtedly, to imagine that this beautiful personage, wealthy as she was, and holding a position that might fairly enough be called distinguished, could have given herself away so privately, but that some whisper and suspicion, and by degrees a full understanding of the fact, would eventually be blown abroad. But then, as I failed not to consider, her original home was at a distance of many hundred miles, Rumors might fill the social atmosphere, or might once have filled it there, which would travel but slowly, against the wind, towards our northeastern metropolis, and perhaps melt into thin air before reaching it. There was not, and I distinctly repeat it, the slightest foundation in my knowledge for any surmise of the kind. But there is a species of intuition, either a spiritual lie or the subtle recognition of a fact, which comes to us in a reduced state of the corporeal system. The soul gets the better of the body, after wasting illness, or when a vegetable diet may have mingled too much ether in the blood. Vapors then rise up to the brain, and take shapes that often image falsehood, but sometimes truth. The spheres of our companions have, at such periods, a vastly greater influence upon our own than when robust health gives us a repellent and self-defensive energy. Zenobia's sphere, I imagine, impressed itself powerfully on mine, and transformed me, during this period of my weakness, into something like a mesmerical clairvoyant. Then also, as anybody could observe, the freedom of her deportment, though to some tastes it might commend itself as the utmost perfection of manner in a youthful widow or a blooming matron, was not exactly maidenlike. What girl had ever laughed as Zenobia did? What girl had ever spoken in her mellow tones? Her unconstrained and inevitable manifestation, I said often to myself, was that of a woman to whom wedlock had thrown wide the gates of mystery. Yet sometimes I strove to be ashamed of these conjectures. I acknowledged it as a masculine grossness, a sin of wicked interpretation, of which man is often guilty towards the other sex, thus to mistake the sweet, liberal, but womanly frankness of a noble and generous disposition. Still, it was of no avail to reason with myself, nor to upbraid myself. Pertinaciously the thought, Zenobia is a wife, Zenobia has lived and loved, there is no folded petal, no latent dewdrop in this perfectly developed rose. Irresistibly that thought drove out all other conclusions, as often as my mind reverted to the subject. 
Zenobia was conscious of my observation, though not, I presume, of the point to which it led me. Mr. Coverdale said she one day, as she saw me watching her, while she arranged my gruel on the table, I have been exposed to a great deal of eye-shot in the few years of my mixing in the world, but never, I think, to precisely such glances as you are in the habit of favouring me with. I seem to interest you very much, and yet, or else a woman's instinct is for once deceived, I cannot reckon you as an admirer. What are you seeking to discover in me? The mystery of your life, answered I, surprised into the truth by the unexpectedness of her attack. And you will never tell me. She bent her head towards me, and let me look into her eyes as if challenging me to drop a plummet line down into the depths of her consciousness. I see nothing now, said I, closing my own eyes, unless it be the face of a sprite laughing at me from the bottom of a deep well. A bachelor always feels himself defrauded when he knows or suspects that any woman of his acquaintance has given herself away. Otherwise the matter could have been no concern of mine. It was purely speculative, for I should not under any circumstances have fallen in love with Zenobia. The riddle made me so nervous, however, in my sensitive condition of mind and body, that I most ungratefully began to wish that she would let me alone. Then, too, her gruel was very wretched stuff, with almost invariably the smell of pine-smoke upon it, like the evil taste that is said to mix itself up with a witch's best concocted dainties. Why could not she have allowed one of the other women to take the gruel in charge? Whatever else might be her gifts, nature certainly never intended Zenobia for a cook or if so, she should have meddled only with the richest and spiciest dishes, and such as are to be tasted at banquets between draughts of intoxicating wine. End of chapter 6